John chapter 19, we've come as far as verse 38, and it brings us to uh, the burial of Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, and that he was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scripture. So this is all part of the biblical scene that God wants us to have in our hearts. Let me read to you. You don't have to turn. I'll read uh, because we, we meet Joseph of Arimathea here. And look, the, the scene, you have to understand, we've been going through it for weeks. The seven sayings on the cross, the three hours of darkness is over. Christ has breathed out the last and he's died. Uh, there is an earthquake that so shook Jerusalem that uh, the Talmud speaks of the earthquakes, several quakes in Jerusalem 40 years before the destruction of the temple. That brings us right here. These are significant quakes that take place. It tells us at this point the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Um, the, the miraculous things that take place. And now it's, it's settled down. The crowd is dissipating. People are leaving. There's still some women from Galilee sitting on the side that have followed him, watching what's happening. And um, there's no doubt the soldiers at this point, as the three are dead, are allowed to go. They're probably taking down the other two thieves. Their bodies will be thrown into the trash heap in the Valley of Hinnom. And that is certainly what the Jews were content to see happen to the body of Christ as well. So those that are still lingering, no doubt, the, 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 the new Christ, the silence must be overwhelming. And they're wondering what's going to happen to the body of our Lord. I'll read through the other Gospels because Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are involved here. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels. It tells us this to Matthew, when even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And all through these four accounts, it's the body. It was given to them, Dr. Luke says, is speaking about a corpse. And it says, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, that's singular, by the way, clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock and rolled a great store, uh, stone to the door. And it says there were women sitting there watching this. Mark tells it to us this way. And now an even was come because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked if he had been dead for any while. And when he knew of it, the, from the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And then 
some of you will be interested in, in verse 46 in chapter 15 in Mark. There's a, a series of events. It's called a polysyndeton where each act is tied together with the Greek word and. And what it, it's written that way to show each single thing has great emphasis laid upon it. So he gave the body to Joseph and he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of rock and rolled a stone to the door of the sepulcher. Luke tells it to us this way. It says, and behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor again, and he was a good man and just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never a man was laid. And that day was the preparation day as the Sabbath drew on, and the women again sat over and watched. And then John, where we are this morning, chapter 19, beginning in verse 38, says, And after this, after all of the things that we had studied, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. And he came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound in weight. The, the Greek is literally 65 pounds of it. And they then took the body of Jesus, they took it, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices. Very importantly, he says, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden there was a new sepulcher, again, wherein never a man yet laid. And there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. So in the midst of this kind of stillness after the whole scene is over, people dissipating, other people wonder what's going to happen. Here, here comes these two stepping out of the darkness into the light. You know, what's going to happen to the body of Jesus? They're going to get thrown in the dump. No, here comes, first of all, tells us this man, Joseph of Arimathea. <clears throat> he steps out of the darkness. And I think he would talk to us today about the fact that he had been a secret disciple. He was a disciple, but for fear, you know, anybody know. And there's a lot of people today like that, I think. For fear, they don't speak about Christ. For fear... They don't let friends or classmates or, or anybody know for fear of man's opinion, what will happen to them and so forth. It was for fear of the Jews that he doesn't say anything as a secret disciple. And, and look, looking what's happening in the world, thinking about how close the rapture of the church could be. It isn't time for you and I to be secret disciples anymore. 
We may suffer for our faith. You see what's happening in the world. You see protests on college campuses. We may suffer for our faith. But I think these two men would tell us any loss in this present life is not to be compared with the glory that's ahead of us. Secret disciples at this point now when others are worried, here comes Joseph of Arimathea stepping out of the darkness into the light. All four Gospels tell us about him. Matthew says he, he, he was a rich man. He had a new tomb. It was hewn out of the rock. This is Elon Musk. This is a man so wealthy in this day, even well-to-do people were often buried in caves. Occasionally, somebody had enough money out of the limestone that's there to, to carve out a sepulcher. And you didn't do that with dynamite or pneumatic tools. You paid a bunch of guys with hammers and chisels to start working on the side of the mountain and carve it all, hollow it all out. So you had a standing space and then you had the place where the bodies laid and the trough is carved there for rolling the stone. This man is wealthy, Joseph of Arimathea. And it tells us in Mark and Luke that he's a counselor. You look up that word in the Greek, it means a member of the Sanhedrin. In fact, Mark tells us he was an honorable counselor. And the Talmud said there were only 14 of those in the history of Israel. We're told again in Mark and Luke that, that Joseph of Arimathea waited for the kingdom of God. Now, the only other people tells that about is Simeon and Anna. When Jesus is a baby brought to the temple to be dedicated, it tells us those two are waiting for the kingdom of God. It tells us Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God. Look, we know that because he's from Arimathea. His family tomb was in Arimathea. His father had been buried there. His grandfather had been buried there. His family had been buried there. And what he's done is he has paid the money to have a new tomb in which never a man had laid, no doubt it was for himself, carved out of the side of the hill in Jerusalem, outside the north gate, no doubt. Um, and look, what they did in those days is uh, when you died, they wrapped you, they put you in the, the shelf that was in the sepulcher called a sarcophagus, which means a flesh eater, because the limestone would make the flesh dissolve in no time. And in about two years, they would come and scrape your bones together and put them in an ossuary, a bone box, push that to the side. Then that space was left open again for the next person in the family that would pass. Joseph of Arimathea is a man who's waiting for the kingdom of God. He believes in the resurrection. And when he wakes up, he wants to be where Messiah is coming. So he carves his own tomb in Jerusalem instead of being buried, buried with the rest of his family. Here's a guy who is so intent, waiting for the kingdom of God. He says, I have the means. I want to do this. This is where I want to wake up because he's going to come right over there. His foot's going to touch on the Mount of Olives. And I want to be here when that happens. So he's waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke says that he had not consented to the council and the deed of the Sanhedrin, how they plotted against Jesus. Luke tells us also that he was a good man and just. Now, look, 
That's an unusual combination, wealthy, good, and just. Because we see a lot of cats today that are wealthy, and they don't care what their constituents think. They're, all they care about is making themselves richer and more powerful, and they're little and wicked men, and they surround us. The world hasn't changed. But when somebody is wealthy and good and just, it means they see their resources as a stewardship and not an indulgence. And this is a man of character, no doubt, as he's placed before us by the gospel writers. And John tells us here, where we're studying today, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And in this scene, he steps out of the shadows. He goes, Matthew tells us, and he begs for the body. Matthew and Luke tell us that from Pilate. Mark tells us he came in boldly to Pilate. He means he went into the praetorium. The Jews and the priests wouldn't go in. Pilate had to keep going out to them because they don't want to be defiled for the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea wants a dead body. He's going to be defiled anyhow. He marches right in to where Pilate is. Pilate must know him because of his wealth. And it says he goes in and craved the body of Jesus. And it tells us there that Pilate said, is he dead? He sends a centurion. When he finds out, it says he gave the body to Joseph. Interesting, the word is gifted. He gave the body of Jesus to Joseph as a gift. The only other word, only other time in the New Testament that word is used in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where it says he's given to us great and precious promises. He's gifted to us, the same word, God, these things, you know, great and precious promises. Here it says in Mark that Pilate gifted the body to Joseph of Arimathea. And he wasn't worried about being defiled. You know, it's Numbers 19.11 says, if you touch a dead body, you're defiled for seven days. You have to set yourself aside. He's not worried about that. Nicodemus is the next guy we meet here. We only meet Nicodemus in John's gospel. He's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John tells us about Nicodemus. If you remember in chapter 3, it says, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. It mentions him in chapter 7 again, and John says, this is Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. When John mentions him again here in chapter 19, he says, Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. All three places, that's that's hanging over his head. Well, Nicodemus has stepped into the light now. He's no longer in the dark. He had come to Jesus remarkably there when Jesus gets into this dialogue with him. He must have been endearing to Jesus. Jesus knew that he was going to bring spices to his tomb someday. <clears throat> so Jesus gets in this dialogue with him. But he, he says, Master, Rabbi, we know you're sent from God. Nobody can do the miracles you're doing unless God has sent him. Here's a, 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 the most notable theolo- theologian in all of Israel. Jesus says to him, are you the master in Israel and you don't understand these things? He, he was an instructor in the school of Gamaliel, Gamaliel, and he was the most noted and respected theologian in Israel. And he comes to this 
30-year-old carpenter from Galilee and says, Rabbi, we know you're sent from God. And of course, Jesus, you, you, you can't even enter the kingdom. You can't even see it. You're not going to enter into it. What do you mean? You say, well, you have to be born again from above. He doesn't say why. He says how, which means he's not doubting. Just how? What am I supposed to do? Go back to my... No, no. You know, it was born of the water. Is water born of the spirit of spirit? You know, it, you know it's, it, he, he is born of the spirit. It's like the, where the wind blows, it listeth where it will. So is he is born of the spirit. You know, and, and he says again, well, how can this be? He says, well, I've told you... Nicodemus, earthly things you don't understand. If I'm going to tell you heavenly things, how are you going to understand those? You are the teacher in Israel? He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Nicodemus, no doubt, leaves an incredible impression on his heart. In chapter 7 of John, the Sanhedrin is again planning to kill Jesus. And they had sent the temple guards to get him. And they came back and said, nobody's ever talked. We never heard anybody talk like this before. And the Sanhedrin's angry. And Nicodemus speaks up and says, well, look, according to our law, we can't sentence a man to death till we've heard the whole case. And then they all yell at him and say, are you from Galilee too? What are you, one of his disciples? Now, look in the word. No, there's no prophets that come from Galilee. That, that is except the city that's called Capernaum. Capernaum, the city of Nahum. They weren't thinking. Um, and then the, the last time we meet Nicodemus, it's here. When he comes and he brings this myrrh, which is normally a powder at the burial that was spread on the, the cloth and so forth. And the aloes is a, is, is a substance made from bark that the Egyptians used when they wrapped mummies. That doesn't happen in Egypt. But he comes. Other than that, we know from history, the Talmud tells us that he is Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, his full name, and that he is the brother of Josephus, the historian. <clears throat> We're told that he is the third richest man in Jerusalem. And when his daughter got married, it was the most opulent wedding Jerusalem had ever seen. And the Talmud said he lost his wealth when he attached himself to the Christians. And within a few years, his daughter was seen scraping barley off the floor of a barn for sustenance. These two guys, look. Tradition tells us that Gamaliel took him into his home. They were buddies. He was the most significant theologian in the school of Gamaliel. No doubt they spent great time in fellowship together talking over scriptures. I don't know whether he thought that, Nic uh, that uh, Nicodemus has gone off the deep end, but he took him into his home and cared for him. I think that's why in Acts chapter 5... If you remember there, the Sanhedrin's planning to kill the Christian. And Gamaliel said, look, these kinds of things have happened before. If this is not of God, you don't have to worry. It's going to fall apart. But if it is of God, you better be careful because you're going to be found to be fighting against God yourself. He's going home every day listening to Nicodemus. Hey, we've seen him. He got up again. We thought he was dead. We thought it was just a corpse. We spent time, you know. So you can imagine he's getting it from both sides. But these two men, wealthy beyond imagination, look. 
For fear of the Jews, Joseph of Arimathea hadn't gone public. That's because in chapter 9 of John, the Sanhedrin had decided that anybody has anything to do with Jesus would be excommunicated. That means if Joseph of Arimathea were to go public, he loses his position in Sanhedrin, loses his position in his family, he loses his family wealth, he loses any properties that he has. He's cut off completely. And the same thing with Nicodemus. Here are two guys who are willing to let go of everything for a dead Jesus. Sometimes you and I in this world, we hold on to things so tight because we think this will make me happy. That will make me happy. This will make me happy. If I achieve this, if I get my hands on this, I'm telling you, these two guys would say to us, do not be secret disciples. doesn't matter what you lose, prestige, friendships, money, because what you're going to get at the end of this isn't even worthy to compare with the nonsense we have here now. These two guys are remarkable. They step out of the shadows at this point in time. They must have been amazed that the veil in the temple was torn at the same time Jesus died on the cross. And in their conversation, they rehearse their convictions and they're stepping into the light. As we watch them, it tells us that Joseph again goes to Pilate and the body is given to him. And it tells us in Mark on his way back to the hill, Golgotha, where Mark tells us and Matthew and Luke that he took the body down remarkably. He brought linen, it says, and returned for the body. In the manner and custom of the Jews, which is so important, which John tells us about here, the a burying, they didn't wrap a dead person like a mummy. That was Egypt. In Israel, they used a shroud. It was called the Tachrachim, still today. Um, Gamaliel, Gamaliel, some say it was Gamaliel the, the second, some say the one we read about in Scripture, had said, it was, it was in the first century, said that, you know, rich people, you know, when they get buried, they get buried in these fancy clothes and, and jewels and so forth. And a poor person, when they die, they're just wrapped in, you know, a, a shroud, white clothing. We all leave the same way we came. We came naked, naked, we leave that way. So they instituted, at this point, this takrakim, which was like a 14-foot-long cloth. The body was laid on it, then it was folded over the head to the feet. Joseph of Arimathea brings that, and it says then that Nicodemus brings about 65 pounds of marinelos, which is worth a fortune. It's worth a fortune. They had to have talked, because if Joseph brought the linen without the spices, it wouldn't mean anything. And if Nicodemus had brought the spices without the linen, that wouldn't mean anything. So these two codgers, you know, they get a plan together. This is where we don't care what people think. We don't care what we lose. <clears throat> you know, what if we'd have spoke up sooner? Maybe we could have done something. They step into the scene here. And it says they come. Matthew says when they had taken the body, when he, Joseph, had taken the body. Mark says specifically that he took the body down. Luke says he took it down. And uh, John says here in our passage today that they, him and Nicodemus, took the body. And look, 
Each place, it's the body and it, the body, the body. It, this is a corpse. And they're taking it down from the cross. So when they come with the linen, they come with the spices. They evidently also come with a crowbar, with a stool. And this is not the work of rich men. And I'm sure this is probably the first time these two men had ever done this. And as we watch them, you can imagine, you know, one supporting the other. Did they take the spike of, out of his feet first? Initially, I would tend to think so. And again, it wasn't high off the ground. Um, the arms were a little higher. Uh, they probably had a stool, one of them. Uh, did they pry out that spike? And then the body's limp. Did it fall over the shoulder of one of them? The crown of thorns, you know. This is, this is bloody. This is wet. This is dead weight. This is unimaginable. And finally, taking out the last spike, the whole body, trying to hold it so it doesn't, and to, 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 to care for it with loving hands, with dignity, and to lay that body down on the ground. You know, it's interesting. Gabriel said to Mary, that holy thing that shall be born of thee, it was impossible to be defiled by this body because it was a holy thing, remarkably. And then they, they take that body and they lay it down, these two rich men, trying to do it with some dignity. And then they're going to treat that body after the manner and the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now, that's interesting because any of you who are or Jews or listening, you know that one of the things that was necessary in that process was the tohora. They still do it among Orthodox Jews today where they wash the body. They take the body, and if it's, a, if it's a man that died, it's only men that are part of the Hevra Kadesh, the holy society that do the washing. If it's a woman, only women are allowed to be part of that, to wash the body. Years ago, one of the gals here at church, uh, Jewish, grew up Jewish, I'll use the name Cohen, um, her father found out he had cancer. He was born in Israel, wanted to go back to Israel to die. So he flew back to Israel. And a couple days before he died, they called her and said, you better get over here, your father. You know, he's coming to the end. You need to get over. And when she got over there, she spent a day or two. And then he died at 9 o'clock in the morning. And she said when he died, the Hevra Kadesh, the Holy Society, came and what they do is called a mitzpah. It's, it's, a, it's serving, it's a commandment, and there's no reward for it because the person's dead. It's considered one of the highest forms of a mitzpah. They came, they took his body, and now she couldn't go in because she was a woman, so she said, I sat in the next room, girl in church telling me, and I heard them say, Mr. Cohen, we're going to wash this, we're washing your head now. Mr. Cohen, we're, you know, we're doing your arms. Now, Mr. Cohen, we're going to roll you over and we're going to wash your back now. Complete dignity, you know, great sensitivity. And she sat there and was able to listen to the whole thing. And when he was washed, they put him in the shroud. And by noon, he was already in the tomb. So you can imagine this scene here. Encyclopedia Judaica, and I have a, a set of them, uh, in there the Mishnah says the Tahora, if it was on the Sabbath, there could be exemptions on the Sabbath, 
not on this Sabbath, because it was a high Sabbath, but even in the exemptions that you were allowed to finish the washing and so forth when the Sabbath set in, you were still then for seven days, um, you were unclean. But the Encyclopedia Judaica says, the Mishnah says the Torah, Tahorah could be performed during the Sabbath, the washing and the anointing. The Talmud says that you, they would take water and mix it with myrtle because of the sweet smell and put that on the head <coughs> and comb the hair before the body was covered. The Jews in Jesus' day, in the first century, their reason for doing these things were told in the book of Ecclesiastes. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return and go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. Ezekiel says it this way, And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee, thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. The description away of a baby is washed and swaddled. So they said, that's the way you came. That's the way you should depart. So as we look at this, our evidence that this was current in the New Testament is in the book of Acts, chapter 9. It says this, Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas, this woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and she died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. So this is the Tahora still performed today. And we watch these two guys now in this process. It's, you know, you, 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 it'll tell us those things. The culture and the history gives us such a remarkable pic picture. What do they do? They have this body, body now in the, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They have there the stone of washing. Acknowledge that this took place. I don't think that's what happened. But here, they have to take the crown of thorns off of his head. Do, do they do that first? Do they have to pry out any of the thorns that broke off and were under his scalp? They wash his face, wash away the spit and the blood, his beard ripped out. Are they thinking of Isaiah? His visage is more marred than that of any man. I give my face to the smiters, those who ripped out the beard. I was not ashamed of their spitting. They wash his shoulders and his chest, the gaping wound where he had been pierced, his side had been pierced. And you know, if you've got a kid that gets a brush burn or cuts themselves, when you, when you wipe the blood away, the, the wound becomes very clear. No doubt as they washed him with warm water, that cleared. They washed his wrists, the holes in his wrists where the blood was, they cleansed him, his feet. And then they rolled him over. And where he had been scourged, there was white bone that was visible, the muscles shredded. How they did it, I can't imagine. They washed his back and they cleaned him. 
our Savior, their Savior. And they rolled him over. They closed his eyes. It was part of the process. They laid his body on the takrakim, and then they folded that shroud over to his feet. They tucked the aloe and probably the powdered myrrh they put in all along there. They wrapped the feet together. They tied the knees together around the shroud. They tied the hands together so they kind of laid on the chest. And then they tied the jaw shut um, with a cloth called a sudarium. They still use that. And then they took and they put him into the tomb, if you can imagine. Were they thinking of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It says there, David prophesied, they had pierced my hands and feet. They had just cleaned those wounds. Are they thinking again of Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53? that he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. That it would be, that his death would be with the wicked and the rich in his death. Our Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus looking at each other saying, and they were scholars, did Isaiah see us? Was Isaiah watching us when his quill went to the page? Nicodemus said, I, I hear him saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I hear him saying it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For a dead Jesus, they do all of this. They roll a stone in place. And they leave, bloody, defiled, broken, silent. They walk away. Do they spend the Sabbath together? We don't know. We don't know. But if we watch them, another question I have is, what happened one Sunday morning, resurrection morning? When the soldiers came to the Sanhedrin and said, hey, an angel came down and rolled the stone away. We saw light, the ground shook, whatever, and the, and the Sanhedrin saying, don't tell anybody, here's money. Says, they were there, they heard. They were part of the Sanhedrin. What was it like for them then to run to the tomb? No doubt they got there after Mary Magdalene and Peter and John. But what was it like for these two guys to step into that tomb and see that shroud that they had tied around and packed with spices the body of Jesus, still laying there with the ankles tied, the knee, where the knees would have been tied, where the hands would have been tied, and the piece of cloth, the sudarian that had been around his head, folded up and laid to the side. What was it like for them to look at that? What was it like for them? Paul tells us there was one point when he appeared to over 500 witnesses at one time. And you know, 
There was a blind man named Bartimaeus there. You know there was a leper there, at least one, cleansed. There was a woman that had a blood flow, and Jesus touched her after 12 years and healed her. There was the widow of Nain and Jairus, her with her son, Jairus with the daughter, who were resurrected, now sitting in front of the resurrected Jesus, their Savior. There was a man who had been let down through the roof. Him and It was crippled. Him and his four friends, no doubt, were there. But I imagine there's two old guys standing there. What was it like for them the first time they saw him? They didn't know the next chapter when they took care of his body. What was it like for them the first time that they saw the eyes that they had closed looking back at them? What was it like for them when they saw the hands, the wrists they had washed, teaching with the holes there? What was it like for them to see this man animated and alive after they had placed him in the tomb? What were their Passovers like from then on? What were their Easter's like from then on? What was communion like for them when they gathered? The first time they saw him, did he glance at them kind of with a smile? Like, thanks, guys. You did a good job. What was it like? I tend to think they were believers. When you take a corpse and take care of it and clean it and wash it and wrap it and put it in your tomb and seal the tomb, and then you see it three days later walking around and talking, you're a believer. (laughs) There's just no way around that. We are told in the Roman calendar, the Christian calendar, that August the 3rd is the day of St. Nicodemus of Kafir Gamala. Kafir Gamala is the house of Gamaliel. August 3rd, the day of St. Nicodemus of the house of Gamaliel. We're told that March 17th, not St. Paddy's Day, is the day of St. Joseph of Arimathea. Tradition says that Philip, the apostle, sends him to Britain in 63 AD, and they found a note by Simon Zelotes that corroborates that. And today in Glastonbury in Somersetshire in England, there is the chapel of St. Joseph of Arimathea. They call him St. Joseph of Glastonbury there. And they say he was the first Christian to come and preach the gospel in Great Britain. There's tradition attached to that. But no doubt, these two men are believers. And I think, then what would they have to say to us today? You know, they've stood in glory now for 2,000 years. And the multitudes there are innumerable of saints and of angels. But I think there's two old, guy, two old guys that kind of stand there together, you know. And they're looking. It says, there the first sight of Jesus is with, like as a lamb with the marks of slaughter upon it. And they're there. Those are, the, those are the wounds that we washed. Those are the eyes that we closed. They stand there. And what would they say to us? 
They probably say you guys are closer to the rapture than we ever were. You guys have seen the rebirth of the nation of Israel. You guys have this much time between where you're living and how you're living now and when you stand with us in glory. Do not be secret disciples in that little bit of time you have left. Because the world we're living in and the nation we're living in, they don't just need Bible studies. They just don't need to see Christian bumper stickers and Christian concerts. They need to see a, a, a Joseph of Arimathea and a Nicodemus who can say, we know he's alive. We walked with him. We spoke with him. That kind of contagion needs to be, and, and I don't have to speak to you, it needs to be in my life. What good can I do from here on in as a pastor if Jesus isn't more real to me than he's ever been before? And what can you be to your friends and those around you if Jesus isn't more real to you than he's ever been? The world is perishing around us. And there'll never be revival. There'll never be the last witness, whatever that might be. If it's for an hour or for a day or for a year, I don't know. But it'll never be what it should unless we step into it with a personal, living, vibrant relationship with the risen Savior. And I think they would tell us all about that, these two. You know, I look at them and I think today in our church, we'd probably say, hey, you were the two wealthiest guys in Jerusalem, wealthy beyond imagination. Would you come to our church and teach a financial seminar? <laughs> Would you come to our church and teach on tithing and giving? They would say, no, 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 we'll come and tell you about Jesus. We'll tell you about what it was like to wash his dead body. We'll tell you what it was like struggling to take that down from the cross. We'll tell you what it was like the third day when we heard and we ran and it was empty. We'll tell you what it was like to look into his eyes. We'll tell you what it was like to listen to him teach when he was risen from the dead. We'll tell you about Jesus. Don't ask us to tell you about junk. Because if you had asked them, they would in an instant have traded away their wealth and reputation again to have what they had afterwards. It never compared to them. I think if you ask these two, do you believe in the literal fulfillment of prophecy? In the inerrancy of God's word, that God's word is divine, it's inspired. Do you believe in the literal fulfillment of prophecy? They would say, we are the literal fulfillment of prophecy. What are you talking about? You're looking at Isaiah right here. He was talking about me. We saw the literal fulfillment of prophecy. They have pierced my hands and my feet. We saw the literal fulfillment of prophecy. As Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What are you talking about? God's word is true down to the smallest thing. Not a bone of him shall be broken. All the way down to that he made his death with the rich. Singular, singular details about individuals. Then what he has to say to you and I and his body of Christ, the church of Christ, in the last days about the rapture of the church has to be true if things about a single bone were true. 
And Jesus is coming. We need to be ready. He's coming. And it isn't, you know, it's not sufficient. I don't know about you guys. I feel a prophetic tension I've never felt before. And this thing in the Middle East, it's going to blow up. It's not going to die down right now. Where is this going to go? We know where we're going to go. But where are our friends and relatives and classmates and people around us that we say we love and care about? We need to step out of the shadows. We can't be secret disciples anymore. Do you hang around with a crowd where you kind of just don't want to be open? They're going to make fun of you. Are you afraid you're going to lose something? Are you afraid you're going to have to let go of something to take hold of Jesus openly? You know, I could stand here every Sunday and teach the word and tell you about Jesus, but what do I do with when I'm at the counter with the checker? What do I do when I'm alone with somebody, when nobody else is watching? What do I do when it's an individual? What do I do when somebody's mad at me? What do I do when I see somebody doing something crazy? Am I, am I willing to step out of the shadows then? Because one person that gets saved changes eternity. One person. I think they'd have some things to say to us today. My encouragement is to let these two old codgers rise off the page. The record is put there by the Holy Spirit for you and I, preserved down through the centuries for us to look at this morning. And right now they're standing. They're standing in glory. They've been there for 2,000 years. (laughs) Amazing. Two days. 1,000 years is a day, and a day is 1,000 years with the Savior. It's gone so fast. We see them when we get caught up and see them, they're going to say, man, time flies. <laughs> Can't believe we've been here 2,000 years. <laughs> Are we committed to getting to our own generation? Okay, four of us. That's at least <laughs> getting things rolling. Are we committed to examining our own hearts and saying, Lord, where have I been reticent? Where have I been, you know, cowardly? Where have I been you know, drawn back where I should be open, where I should be proud of you, where I should be sharing your love and what you've done. We should examine our hearts about those things. What are we willing to let go of? This wealth that they let go of was unimaginable. Their reputation, their employment, their savings, their family. They were willing to let go of everything for a dead Jesus. They didn't know chapter 20. They never read it. They would say to us, man, we let go everything for a corpse. You get to serve the living Jesus. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray. And please, if you've never come to this Jesus, you don't know him personally. I don't care if you had religion. I don't care if you're church membership somewhere. Do you know Jesus? If you're not saved, please get up here after the service. We'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, some literature to read. The pastors will be up here, but let's bow our hearts. Lord, we look to you, Lord, and just there's so much woven here, Lord, that's beautiful, of depth, Lord, that touches our hearts. We, we live in a world where death is all around us, Lord. And uh, to watch this scene... 
to care, Lord, out of the hands of wicked men into the hands of those who love you, caring even for your frame. Lord Jesus, speak to our hearts. Please speak to my heart, please, Lord. We trust you to do that, Lord. And for any that are here today who don't know you, Lord, draw them into your loving arms this day, Lord Jesus. We know you're able. We pray in your name. Amen.